for those of you who do not know, I am celebrating 11 years doing this class today. So I started, actually, before I came over here, I spent some time hunting down my very first notes from my very first class. And officially, it was 16th of August, 2008. Which is next, which is Friday, technically, and I'm not going to be around next week, so I figured I'd do it today. And um, I started with, and this is what I did. I said I'm going to start with the life of the Buddha, and then just keep going every week. And 16th August 2008, George Bush was president. That's <laughs> a long time ago. It's a long time ago. The innocent days, yeah. No, that's an American weirdo thing. Yeah. The, that time of innocence, right. It seems so bad. It was pretty bad. Who knew it could get worse? <laughs> and it has. Um, so it was, I was in teacher training, and I was horrible. I was, oh, I was horrible. I was so bad. Um, but I kept coming back every week. I'd show up and I'd give a talk, and you know, eventually, I, um, you know, I, I, and I'm still here. So that's the interesting point about this, you know. And I, I, I thought I, I gave a talk the other night on Thursday because I teach Thursday in Studio City and here in, um, on Saturdays and. I thought instead of giving that same talk, although I think I will touch on it, I wanted to maybe just do my Dharma journey. I've heard people do Dharma biographies, and so you know, you think you can think about your Dharma Dharma journey too. I, I um, if you look at my bio on. Um, my, my bio says, I think the first line, which I wrote in 2008 for the website, says, um, you know, I started my spiritual journey over 30 years ago. And what that means is that's when I got sober. Because <laughs> I was raised a Catholic and had no interest in any religion whatsoever. In fact, I was quite disdainful of people who had any kind of, even spirituality in their lives. But... Um, I was always drawn to stuff, and, and when I finally was able to let go of the, the alcohol that was, you know, my tool for dealing with the world, I was able to begin to um, allow other things into my life. I was able to begin to have a journey that was um, not all about survival. It was about uh, seeing a bigger picture. It was about getting... Um, connected with my internal world, but it took a while because, you know, I, you hear over and over again in these classes that we are conditioned beings. And I had, my conditioning was a, a schizophrenic mother, and um, that shaped me, although I was very dismissive of it. I was like, no big deal, no big deal. And I think I talked about this a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about I might, have, oh, it might have been last week when I was talking about spiritual bypass. Um, 
when we just kind of get to this place of not being willing to look at what's happening. And I was all about, yeah, I had a schizophrenic mother. Yeah, I was alone with her for, you know, um, basically the first 16, 18 years of my life. Yeah, no big deal. I'm good. And that's how I operated. That's how I operated. I mean, my, uh, my drinking and using other substances, I used a lot of shit. I ate, I drank, I did whatever was around. And um, that was my way of coping. That was my way of dealing with feelings. And so you take that out of the mix and there comes a point in time where you either turn towards it or you, you don't. And I, I think I told this story last week about, I can't remember, Brian Edward S. B. Brown, I think he's a Zen person. He's a Zen priest. He was ordained, I think, in 1971, and he was in, with the San Francisco Zen Center. And he talked about the first 20 years of his being a monk. He just skated on, um, you know, not doing any of the work. Really, just all about looking good in the Zen tradition, which is all about form. You know, so he, he, if you looked at him during meditation, he had perfect posture, you know, he did, he did everything. And then he got to a point, which I talk about, where you either grow or you go. You get to this, the rubber meets the road, you hit the wall head on, pick your own metaphor, where you just go, I can either deal with this pain inside or not. And I started reading Buddhist stuff um, 20, over 25 years ago. I read Pema Chodron. Um, I listened to Thich Nhat Hanh. I remember hearing him teach in Santa Monica a million years ago. So I began to, I really was drawn to it. I remember reading an interview or a conversation between Alice Walker and Pema Chodron, which is what got me really going in that direction. And, but it was all from the outside. And that's so true, again, of, of many, many people who come to classes, who come to uh, meditation. They have read many, many books, but have never really done the work or done the practice. And you see, it's like reading cookbooks um, and never preparing anything, or reading a menu and never ordering or eating. It's like you're on the outside looking in. And we have a very, well, maybe until recently, we had a really high regard for in, um, intelligence in this country. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, where book learning was, was um, thought highly of. You know, and oh, you you know all these things. You can cite these facts. You can rec you can recite the suttas. You know, you can name all these things. And um, but that that's all intellectual. And this is not a intellectual practice. It's a an embodied practice. It's a practice where you actually touch what's going on inside. And I tried meditating. I took classes with people. I, I meditated at home. Most of, most of the stuff I did was little just, you know, um, let go, let go, let go. My own little mantras that I came up with. And so I, and I actually got Sharon Salzberg's book, Loving Kindness, and I did that for a year, which I saw it had an impact on me. And then when Noah came to Los Angeles, I started sitting with him. And it was a formal practice, the first really formal practice I had. And that's when it was that grow or go time. And um, it was time to put the intellectual piece down, the, 
yes, I understand that I had a difficult life and my conditioning um, was hard, but it, because I am aware of it, it has no impact on me. That's where I used to think. If I knew, if I could name it intellectually, it would have no impact. Totally ignoring everything from the neck down. And this practice says, no, you have to sit and you have to feel. And this is where I maybe will go into this, this story um, that I was talking about the other night. And it's a story that it's from this book by uh, Joanna Macy, who is quite extraordinary. World is lover, world is self. And she, it's um, the Shambhala um, prophecy. And it's a Tibetan, um, it's a Tibetan um, story, and uh, it's it's Tibetan. Um, it's from a prophecy that arose in Tibetan Buddhism over twelve centuries ago, and she learned it from some Tibetan friends in India. And they have a, it has a lot like any of these stories. They have multitudes of um, interpretations, but in the one her teacher talked about, it said that there's going to come a time when all life on, a, on earth is in danger. And it's either, you know, it's either a metaphor or an actual prophecy for, you know, like the Nostradamus, we're going to, what was it, or the, as the Mayan, the Mayan prophecy was 2012, another time of innocence, right? It's <laughs> 2012, we were going to, I don't know what was going to happen, but we weren't going to live to 2013. Well, that didn't happen. Um, so there comes a, so this is, I believe, like many of the Buddhist teachings, not that this is a teaching of the Buddha, but it reminds me a little bit of the armies of Mara, where if you're familiar with the story of Buddha, Mara is the personification of greed and anger and, and delusion, and he has so-called armies, which, he's, which he just kind of sends at the Buddha, you know, to try and knock him off and, and um, distract him. And Buddha says, I see you for what you are. I see your greed. I see your hatred. I see your delusion. And so the Buddha is not distracted by that because he sees it clearly. And that's a, that's a, that's a metaphor for the struggle we go through in our own minds, in our own experience of fighting against the, the craving and the aversion and the restlessness and the fear and the worry and all these emotions that we are so afraid of. Because that's what it comes down to. When we're not interested in turning towards, it's because there's something there we don't want to see. So there's an underlying um, level or layer of fear. And so in the Shambhala prophecy, it talks about a time when there's these, these great armies that are fighting each other. And when that era happens is when the kingdom of Shambhala begins to emerge. And you can't go there for it's not a place. Therefore, it must be in your head. Um, nor can you recognize a Shambhala warrior. There are warriors that arise. You, can, you, you can't go there and you cannot recognize a Shambhala warrior when you see him or her, for they wear no uniform or insignia and they carry no banners. They have no barricades on which to climb and threaten the enemy. They don't even have a home turf. They always might, they must move on the terrain of the barbarians themselves. They must go towards whatever's coming at them. Now the time comes when great courage, moral and physical, is required of the Shambhala warriors, for they must go into the very heart of the barbarian power, into the pits and pockets and citadels where the weapons are kept to dismantle them. 
to dismantle the weapons in every sense of the word. They must go into the corridors of power where decisions are made. They have to, the Shambhala warriors have to go into the halls of the enemy. It's all about our internal journey. That's what this is. When, we're, when we are sitting on the cushion, so to speak, when we're doing this practice, we have to be willing to see what's there. So oftentimes, there's so many people have come to this class over the years, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And they come, and they're ardent, ardent practitioners, and then they disappear. And it's not all because I'm, I'm terrible as a teacher. It's sometimes it's because this practice is too difficult. Because there are many other teachers from which to choose. But they just go, you know what, I can't do it because people are much, um, we tend to move towards the easier, the softer, the, the more pleasant. And this is a, is a place of, you know, it's, it's probably not going to be pleasant. I can almost guarantee it's not going to be pleasant. Can you sit with it? You know, the Shambhala warriors have the courage to do this because they know these weapons that are coming at them are manomaya, or mind-made. These fears, these, these what-ifs, these stories are made up by our minds. They may seem incredibly real because we're the star of them. And we can, we can you know, really get some fine, fine detail. And when we tell ourselves these stories over and over and over again, you believe them. They become embedded. They're really ingrained deeply. And so to be willing to turn and, and um, face them is difficult. I, for my own experience, talking about, you know, having grown up in this really difficult circumstance and being really, it was fine, no big deal, I'm good. Look, I'm, I got a college degree, and I got a good job, I got a relationship, yay! But in inside, it was brutal. And there came a time where I had to say, oh, fuck. <laughs> and turn towards, be willing to see what was going on inside. Be willing to touch that pain. And it's our in unwillingness to touch the pain that drives us to cover it up with all these other things. The Shambhala warriors know these weapons are man-made or mind-made. And if they're made by the human mind, they can be unmade by the human mind. The Shambhala warriors know the dangers that threaten life on Earth are not visited upon us by any extraterrestrial powers, satanic deities, or preordained evil fate. They arise from our own decisions, our own lifestyles, and our own relationships. Our circumstances, our conditioning, is not our fault. We're not responsible for what happened to us when we were growing up, for the conditions of our, 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 our families, our, our neighborhoods, our cultures, but we are responsible for taking accountability for taking care of them now. 
I can look back and see what happened back then and say, oh, poor me. If you had my upbringing, you would be this way too. That's a cop-out. That's an absolute cop-out, especially if we're, in a, we're, we're causing harm or creating suffering, not even for others, but for ourselves. So we have to be willing to sit with and acknowledge that, yeah, this shit happened. Because shit happens to everyone. Anybody in this room not have shit? No, y'all got it. I know it. Yeah. But it's what we do with it that is important. Our own decisions, our own lifestyles, and our own relationships. So in this time, the Shambhala warriors go into training. And when my teacher said this, I asked him, how do they train? They train, he said, in the use of two weapons. What weapons, I asked. The weapons are, there are two weapons, compassion and insight. Both are necessary. You have to have compassion because it gives you the juice, the power, the passion to move. When you open to the pain of the world, you move, you act. Compassion means being touched by the pain, by the suffering of the world, of your own suffering of being willing to even be touched by your own experience. And when you're willing to do that, then there's this, this, this almost this impetus to um, alleviate that pain, however you can. Alleviate that suffering, right or wrong, fixing injustice. So you have the compassion because you have to have that because it gives you the juice, the power, the passion to move. When you open to the pain of the world, you move, you act. But that weapon by itself is not enough because it can burn you out. Anybody have compassion fatigue? There's a lot of it. You know, there's so much, so much suffering, so much horror, so much tragedy, so much really awful things going on right now that it's people want to go, I'm out of here. Just like shut down. And that sometimes is wise, but if it just drives you to just turn off altogether, that's that burnout. You know, sometimes people have a physical toll. Their bodies, you know, they just don't um, manage it well. I have a lot of friends who stress, stress uh, um, manifests physically, that they get sick or whatever. Um, so to really be aware of that. So compassion is not enough. It can burn you out, so you need the other. You need insight into the radical interde interdependence of all phenomena. With that wisdom, you know that it is not a battle between, between good guys and bad guys, but that the line between good and evil runs through the landscape of every human heart. Each of us have that, that, that um, fullness, that wholeness to, be, to move um, towards uh, wise and skillful action or to, towards unskillful, unbeneficial action. The line between good and evil runs through the landscape of every human heart. With insight into our profound interrelatedness, you know that actions undertaken with pure intent have repercussions throughout the web of life beyond what you can measure or discern. 
by itself, that insight may appear too cool, too conceptual to sustain you and keep you moving. So you need the heat of compassion. Together within each Shambhala warrior and among the warriors themselves, these two can sustain us as agents of wholesome change. They are gifts for us to claim now in the healing of the world. And they talk about that in Theravana a lot of times. There's the, the wings of awakening. There's the two wings. There's the compassion and there's the wisdom. You have to have this wisdom, this discernment to see clearly what the story is, what's going on, what's present. For me, I had to be willing to see clearly that, oh, that upbringing had a huge impact on me. It, it, it conditioned my behavior in really profound ways profound ways that impacted my relationships, that impacted how I walked through the world. And so the first step was that willingness to see, that, that willingness to clear away some of the dust in my eyes. Because the pain of not doing it became greater than the pain of doing it. And that's that grow or go point. If you're willing to turn towards it and see the pain that you're experiencing, that suffering, that discomfort, however you want to describe it or define it, that becomes greater than, than turning away from it. The turning towards, no, the turning away from it, the pain of turning away becomes greater than the pain of turning towards. The denial hurts too much. And for healing to take place, you have to turn towards. There's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to go. You have to sit with it. And my own experience when someone, when I was sitting for the very first time with my emotions that were just kind of in my chest, and the, the question is, what, you know, when we, we offer these instructions and people say, what do I do with this stuff? It's like, where is it in your body? What does it feel like? Does it have a shape? Does it have a temperature? Does it have a texture? And my experience was this thing just sitting there in my chest was this perfectly round sphere. And it was made of some material that was not from this planet. It, and which meant that it was probably never going to be, you know, no, it was extraterrestrial. And there was no way to bust it open. You know, it was, it was like textbook because I had built such an armor around my heart. I was unwilling to let anything in because it was so terrifying. I can't say why. I mean, I can, I can list out facts and I don't know when I started building that wall or any of those things. I don't have details. I can't pull out a piece of paper and say, oh, I remember it was, you know, April 17th, 1959. That was the day. I don't know, but I can see the ramifications of it. I have the big picture of this was shitty, and this is where I ended up. Now, how do I unravel that? And the unraveling takes the shape of being willing to turn towards it and being willing to really dive headfirst into these teachings. Okay, what, was, what I was doing, 
wasn't working. Wasn't working at all. What do I have to do now? And a lot of it was that sitting, 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 ah, coming to class, sitting at home, being with all that, I don't want to say nonsense, but being with that stuff that it was almost like taking a, a chisel and a hammer and smashing that, that thing wide open, that, that sphere. Being willing to cry. That, was, that word was not in my vocabulary. Crying was not in my vocabulary. This is my particular story. Everybody is different, but this, is, this was my journey. I was like, ah, cry? No. I couldn't, I was not, I couldn't show weakness. I couldn't be imperfect. Oh my God, anybody else suffer from perfectionism? Challenging? Is that challenging? A little bit. Yeah, because it's impossible. So you're always a failure. And then building, you know, the, the rationalization for your imperfection. I'm a piece of shit and it's their fault or however it rolls out for you. So seeing that clearly and being willing to say, oh my God, this hurts. Oh, this is painful. Oh, yeah. It's, it, it's, it's a journey of being willing to say, yeah, that did have an impact on me. I am part of the human, I do experience the human condition. It's, it's that diagnosis we all have, the human condition. As, as she says in here, the interrelatedness, starting to see clearly. The insight, seeing clearly that it's not just you. It's not just me. We're not, we're not over in the corner. And everybody else is going about their business. We're all stumbling along, dealing with our experiences, trying to do the best we can. That's the interrelatedness. That's the awareness of the human condition. That's what the Buddha said in the first noble truth. We are all of the nature to grow old and sick and die. Birth is suffering. Death is suffering. Loss is suffering. You know, not getting what we want. Losing what we have. That's all suffering. That's part of our condition. And fighting that, fighting that reality is where we suffer. Second noble truth. So when I fought tooth and nail to not experience my actual life, it was fucking painful. I drank, I ate, I did drugs, I did all that stuff, I slept around, I did everything. None of that worked. So I got rid of all of that. And, you know, eventually when you take all those things away, those distractions, it's like, <sighs> and this practice, this willingness, and it's not just Buddhist teachings. You hear it in, in um, spiritual teachings around the world and there's tons of poets and tons of, of quotations saying, you have to go through. You can't go around. It's St. John of the Cross, that long, dark night of the soul. You can't go around. You can't just keep the lights on for 24 hours a day. You have to, you have to allow it to be dark. You have to be willing to be in the darkness to get to the other side, that path of purification. And the Buddha lays out such with such great wisdom, this path of the, the Eightfold Path, 
set your intention, see clearly. You know, and, and it's, a, it's a journey that we get deeper and deeper and deeper into the longer we do this and see more clearly and see the subtlety of our experience and the subtlety of how we, re re we respond to the world. So we see clearly, you know, wise you. Oh, there is this, there is suffering. Things end. You know, I don't have this fixed persona that once I get there, it's all good. It's constantly shifting. We're conditioned beings. And see clearly, you know, that there's greed and anger and aversion and delusion. And we set our intention to move in a way that's wise and compassionate. Cultivating wisdom and compassion. You know, and we and we and we choose to live in a way that that doesn't cause harm, and we let go of what does cause harm, and then there's this whole patch of the eightfold path of of how we interrelate with other people, with other beings. You know, and it's not just not doing stuff, but it's also cultivating compassion again, the compassion, and cultivating generosity. <clears throat> not taking, but cultivating generosity and really seeing clearly how we show up. Am I doing this correctly or wisely? I'm not right or wrong, but am I behaving in a way that's wise and skillful? With the awareness that we're human beings and we're going to have snot in our nose and we get a cold, like Pema Chodron says, or we're going to fall down and we're going to make mistakes, but hopefully not intentionally causing harm. And just being wise, and then, you know, the last section of the Eightfold Path is continuing to make the effort, continuing to see when we're lost in thought that's not beneficial or helpful, and to let it go and cultivate the beneficial, and to cultivate mindfulness. Because without paying attention, you ain't going to get there. If you start going on autopilot, you're probably going to drift, you know? Even autopilot needs to be adjusted for a while because of, of, of life that's coming at you. You have to pay attention. And then, you know, seeing, just staying present, staying present, staying present. And that's where we get this, that's where we get some freedom. That's where we get liberation. So my history hasn't changed. I still have the same upbringing. I still have the same history. I'm still pretty much living in the same place I lived. I've lived in a couple of places since I really started practicing. But the, for, for, I'm still married to the same person. For the most part, nothing has changed. So if I'm thinking that a house on the hill or something out there will fix me, the perfect relationship, my relationship is not perfect, I am not perfect, he is not perfect. So if I think any of those things perfect job isn't going to fix me. If I, if I put my bets on that, I'm going to be disappointed. It's an internal thing. Like she said, the Shambhala, kingdom of Shambhala is not a place you can go. There's no there there. They say that about Oakland, and they say that about everything else. There's no there there. It's internal. So when you are willing to start doing the internal work, then there's the freedom from all that shit you've been carrying around your whole life. And there's new shit happening all the time. You know, there's, there's a lot of social media has added a whole new dimension to our world. And, and this nonsense, these, this propaganda machine that is working overdrive. 
and we believe what we hear and we, we're buying into stuff and it's like we always have to stay um, aware. We have to pay attention all the time. Always have to pay attention. So, so and when you do, it doesn't mean things are always going to be groovy. It doesn't mean there's not going to be sadness. It doesn't mean people aren't, that you love aren't going to die. It doesn't mean it's going to be baskets of baklava and homegrown tomatoes all the time. It just means that you will have an equanimity, an ease with the uncomfortable and the comfortable. You'll have an ease with whatever arises. You don't need it to be a certain way to have some, some balance in your life, to have some contentment. And if you've been practicing for a while, like a lot of you in this room have been practicing for a while, I know you've seen shifts and changes in your own lives. Where what you, your perspective and your relationship to the world has changed. You probably no longer react in certain ways the way you used to. You don't do things you used to do. You don't behave in ways you used to behave. You probably take better care of yourselves in some ways. And I'm sure there's a ways to go. You can, I can sit here and tell you all the ways I still need to work, but we don't have to focus on that. I think it's important to focus on what you have, the, the, the experiences you have um, had about, oh, there's been a shift, there's been a change. You know, the seven factors of awakening is investigation, investigation and seeing clearly, oh, this is different. This is different. There is contentment here where maybe there wasn't before. There's an ability to see where you're caught in your own mind. Oh, that's that same old story. I may always have that same old story. My stories of inadequacy and of being on the outside looking in and never being good enough. That's my story. I may always have, a, have this thing, this, this, this um, uh, emotion arise when I have to say something difficult to another person. That is like one of the hardest things for me to do, say, tell somebody something that even if, I, even if they don't care, in my mind I think it, it's, it's in my mind that, as she said, it's all, these weapons are made by my mind. So a lot of my struggles are just stories I tell myself. So I recognize the, the physical discomfort arising with that story. They're not going to like it. They're going to be mad at me. They're not going to have any friends. I'm going to blah, blah, blah. The tired old stories that, you know, have cobwebs on them. They're so old. Feel it and do what needs to be done anyway. That's where the courage is. So I may always have that happen when I have to do particular things. But I do it. There's a tremendous freedom and there's no harshness. There's no judgment. There's no criticism. There's an understanding. There's a compassion. There's a compassion we have for our own suffering. That's part of it. You know, all beings. The Buddha said all beings. You are all included in that. All beings. We're not, it's like all beings except me. All y'all, but I'm 
Ambry over here, you know, chastising myself for failing again. I didn't get that done. I was procrastinating again. Ah, I'm such a loser. Oh, I don't get to use that word anymore because that's not wise speech. Oh, okay. So it's slowly, 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 these small steps. And we all start in a different place. We all have a different experience. So what's true for each of you may not be true for anybody else in this room. So we find our own way with it. We, we have these guidelines that we walk in between, but we find our own way with whatever's up for ours, us at that moment. So, so um, I'm tickled. I'm when I when I offer that instruction at the end of meditation to be grateful. What comes up for me time and time again is gratitude for this practice. I am so grateful for this practice because I um, have an ease in my life today that I couldn't imagine was possible. It's not that my life is perfect. There's still shit going on. You should have seen me this week railing at some people that I was working, doing some business with. And I'm like, half the week I was like, when are you going to get your shit together? When are you going to get your shit together? So, you know, it's not life is perfect, but I'm, it doesn't follow me around anymore. I can put it down really grateful for that so i'm incredibly grateful for this practice so um those are my two cents any questions or comments so thank you for that and a couple of things there when you see other people you know behaving badly and getting away with it it's not this this teaching does not say so you're cool with it that's not what it's saying <laughs> that it's saying you're aware of it but also when you have this anger for other people you're the one who's suffering they are oblivious to it but you're the one who's like ah. so you know that's that's what the teaching is about it's not about um, not holding other people accountable or if they're causing harm working towards ending that it's it's not about that it's about being able to go yeah this is really shitty but am i going to let it ruin my day i mean it's really shitty but am i going to uh, like um just be overwhelmed by it be drown you know dr be drown in it be in um you know uh, I there was a word that came and went, but just kind of be overwhelmed by it. There's no need. The, the teaching is that there's no need for that. You know, we can be touched by the pain and suffering of, of other people, but not drown in it. You know, and say, just really be willing to be present with what's happening right now. There's a shit ton of people out there who are causing tremendous harm, tremendous harm. And they seem to be living high on the hog and nothing's bothering them. We don't know what's going on inside inside them. And there's no, I, why ask why? I think that was Budweiser, right? Why ask why? Well, there's no answer to why. It's, at least I don't try and do that. I just say, okay, is there anything I can do to say that's not okay? I accept it because it's reality. Well, I'm not going to fight reality. This is happening. This is real. It's fucking awful. It's painful. And it's real. Can I do anything about it? Yes or no? What can I do? Even if it's this much or, or 
are there other people doing? So there's a whole there's a whole uh, raft of things that you can or can't do or movements, directions to take. But I no longer give those people power over me. They no longer have power to make me miserable, which is a lot of what this, that, that holding that anger. Because I can have anger. There's people that, that, oh yeah, there's anger. But the anger doesn't consume me. I don't say, I am so angry. I say, oh, there's that anger again. We have a different relationship to our emotions. And sometimes it takes a while for that, that concept to, um, to make sense. So if it doesn't make sense, don't worry about it, really. It just, I just go, okay, I don't understand that because that's what it, you can't understand everything at the beginning of a practice or the beginning of a journey or even halfway through a journey. It's like some things are like, okay, I trust. One of the five faculties is faith. I trust. A, B, C, and D work. I'm going to trust that E, F, and G is true also, even though it makes no sense to me. You know, because I haven't been really um, turned wrong yet, if that makes sense. So. I am. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And if you don't, if it doesn't, you know, see for yourself if it makes sense. That's the beauty of this teaching. See for yourself. You know, try it on and see what it does for you. And if it does, you know, give it and don't not just for a week. It's like try it for like six months a year. I mean, you can't. Nobody can do any kind of really deep work like this in five minutes. Although we want to. We want, we, come on, come on, I don't have all day. Fix me, <laughs> fix me. How much will it take to fix me? So, yeah, so just try it, you know, give it, a, set an intention. It's like, I'm going to try this, really do it for six months and see, see where you are at the end of that. The Dalai Lama says, check back in 10 years. Not because you have to do that, but it's just saying this takes a while. It takes a while. So, and be nice to yourself. Be gentle on yourself. So, thank you.